As you're having a seat, please turn with me to Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that one of my jobs in seminary was that of a security guard, and it was stunning for many of you, but it's true. And I had multiple jobs that I would work as a security guard. One of them was a small office building in Dallas. It's about 20 stories. And um, one of my jobs is every evening I'd have to make the rounds. Every few hours, I would have to go into every office. So there's a, you know, it's a building with the offices around this way, an atrium that reached all the way to the, to the ceiling. And so I would go to each and every office. Uh, some of the doors I'd just check and make sure they're locked, but some of them I had to go into. Probably about 75%. I'd go into the office, make sure all the lights are turned off, coffee makers turned off, all this kind of thing. And uh, after I learned the building, I thought it'd be fun to challenge myself by doing all of my rounds in the dark. I thought, you know, it must be fun. I know the layout of every office, so I would go in, I'd unlock it, and I would just work my way through, you know, I, you know avoiding everything. And every once in a while, what I discovered is um, people move the furniture. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think they did it on purpose. I don't think they knew my little game, but um, I'd crash into furniture. I'd flip on the lights, and I'd go, oh, okay, that's what happened. This is obvious. Maybe I should turn the lights on. It's a little easier to make all the rounds when you can see what's going on. What's been happening in the book of Romans is that we've been wandering around in the dark. And now Paul's going to turn on the lights. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, Paul turns on the lights. Martin Luther once said of this passage, this is the chief point, the very central place of the epistle, and in fact of the whole Bible. Uh, Leon Morris, a modern commentator, said this. This passage, Romans 3, 21 through 26, is possibly the most important paragraph ever written. Because in this paragraph, Paul turns on the lights. If you are joining us for the first time, I want to put this in context for you. We have been talking about the righteousness of God. The theme of the book of Romans is the righteousness of God. And what we mean by that is that God is right or righteous in who he is. His character is always right. As a result, he always does what is right. Righteous means there is a standard. The standard is God himself. God's character is that standard. He is the standard, and he behaves consistently with the standard. As it says in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, the rock... His work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. God is perfect in his character. God is perfect in his actions. But the problem that Paul has pointed out for us in Romans 1 through 3 is that we are not perfect. We don't measure up to the standard. And as a result, we are under condemnation. Each and every person is living under the sentence of God's wrath. That is the point of Romans 1.18 through chapter 3, verse 20. All of us are under the wrath of God. It doesn't matter what category of person you fall into. And Paul breaks down humanity into four different categories. The immoral person, well, that's pretty obvious. He talks about obvious, overt type sins, which we're tempted to read and say, wow, I'm glad that's not me. So Paul then addresses the self-righteous person and says, really, really, that's not you? Well, I think that your conscience convicts you. You say that others shouldn't do those things, but you, in fact, do the same, if not outwardly, at least in your heart. 
And then he turns to the law-abiding Jew who says, well, I don't practice those things. I keep the law. And Paul says, really? You know, you can be righteous if you keep the law perfectly. Have you kept it perfectly? If not, then you need to understand by the works of the law, no flesh will be declared right in the sight of God. And then another group of Jews rise up and says, but how can that be? We are privileged. We're God's chosen people. How can we be under condemnation like the rest of humanity outside of the righteousness of God? And he says, because you are privileged, you have a greater responsibility and a greater culpability. And if you look at your history everywhere you've gone in the world, you've actually brought dishonor to the name of God because you haven't lived that differently from the rest of the world. Paul's conclusion is this. There is none righteous. He's not saying there are no people who have ever done good works. He's saying there's none that measures up to the standard of the perfection of God. There's not even one. Or as he says in summary in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and all are falling short of the glory of God. All are born separated from God and his righteousness and then all continue to move further and further away from God. And the result is all are under condemnation. Bishop Handley Mool said years ago, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of God's glory, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you are at the crest of the Alps, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they are. Isn't that beautiful? The stars are the righteousness of God and it doesn't matter if you're at the bottom of the mine or the crest of the Alps, you cannot touch the stars. That's the darkness that we've been wandering around in for four weeks, and I'm sure you're glad that now we're stepping out of that and we're going to talk about something that's a little bit brighter. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Paul makes a transition. He says, but now. You're all under condemnation, but now. Martin Lloyd-Jones made a beautiful observation. He said, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words, but now. I want you to read with me, starting in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and all are falling short of the glory of God. Paul says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Now God is doing a new thing. It's a different solution. And it's a solution that does not rest upon the faithfulness of men. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, it says this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a new arrangement with mankind, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant which I made with their fathers, my covenant which they broke. I'm going to make a new arrangement to put people back in right relationship with me, and it won't be dependent upon their faithfulness. On the other hand, it will be a solution that is entirely consistent with what God has announced throughout the entire Old Testament. As he says, it is witnessed by the law and the prophets. It is new and it's different, but all the law and the prophets were pointing this direction, that God would justify or set people right and do it not based upon their own faithfulness, but based upon his faithfulness. Verse 33. But instead, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be 
my people. And Paul says, but now, let's talk about a different way. Let's move out of the darkness of condemnation and into the light of the righteousness of God. Specifically, what is God's solution? It is this, justification by faith. That is, God will put us in right relationship with him through no effort of our own. God will put us in right relationship with him through no effort of our own. Look with me now in chapter 3, and let's read verse 22. Let's read verse 21 again, actually. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. How is this possible? In other words, uh, how could a perfectly righteous and holy God take people who are perfectly unrighteous and reconcile them to himself without doing injustice to his own character? How can the holiness of God once again be in relationship or fellowship with the unholy creation? How is it possible? I want you to read with me again 321 through 22, but with a slightly different translation. It says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God, which is our theme for the book of Romans, has been disclosed or made manifest or revealed, being witnessed or testified to by the law and the prophets, consistent with all that they have said. That is, specifically, the righteousness of God through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all those who believe. Now, in most of your translations, it probably says, like mine, through faith in Christ for all who believe. Uh, I have become convinced that that's not a good translation. Because it's redundant. What I think Paul is pointing to is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Now, is our faith in him important? Absolutely. He says it in the next phrase. And all of chapter 4 is going to be about our response to God. But in this section, what he is contrasting is what we can accomplish on our own and what Christ has accomplished for us. So his point here is the way that God is going to reconcile us to himself is through the faithful work of Jesus Christ. Remember, as we introduced the book, we said God's plan all along was to reconcile man back to himself and to do it through a man. God didn't give up on mankind. In fact, he chose Abraham and he said, Abraham, it's going to be through your seed, through your family, through your branch of humanity that I will reconcile all of humanity. But God searched and searched and searched and he could not find a faithful man. And then God found that man by becoming man. In Jesus Christ. The Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, took on human flesh and he became exactly like us, but he lived very differently than we have lived. As it says in the book of Hebrews, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, but he didn't fail. No less human than we are, but at every point of temptation, he succeeded where we failed. Later in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, the author will say, For it was fitting, it was appropriate, it was necessary for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The author has been contrasting the old Levitical priesthood, priests who were failures themselves, who were exactly like us, who first had to offer their own sacrifices for their own sins. Priests who were to be intermediaries between humanity and God, 
But they themselves needed an intermediary. So God provided one who is an absolutely perfect priest who could stand between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ. And it is through the faithful work of Jesus Christ, living a sinless life and dying a perfect death, that God could once again, in his absolute holiness, reach down and reconcile sinful humanity. Now, how does it work? What did it accomplish? Read with me again, chapter 3, beginning in verse 23. For all have sinned, and all are falling short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justification accomplishes several things. First, it accomplishes right standing with God. Uh, justification is probably the most important theological concept in the entire Bible. Okay, you don't want to miss it. It is misunderstood frequently. So pay close attention. What does Paul mean when he talks about justification? First, he does not mean to make righteous. Okay? The imagery of justification is that of a law court. Okay? And God is the judge. We're the defendant. And a case is being made against us. And the question is, will we be declared in right standing with the court, or will we be condemned based upon our sins? The image of the law court is not that God as judge gets down from his bench and takes our place. That's not the image. The image is the God who is judge has to declare a sentence, which is either acquitted in right standing or guilty. It is not God making us virtuous. Okay? It is not God saying, well, really, you are good after all. Okay? Nor is it God just treating us as if we were righteous. That is some kind of legal fiction. It is, in fact, this. It is God declaring us righteous. God is on the bench, and he looks down upon us in our sin and choosing instead to see Christ in our place, he declares us righteous because our guilt has been punished in Christ. It is a legal reality. It is a change of status. You are now in right relationship with God if you believe in Jesus Christ because God sees you in Christ. He sees the faithful work of Christ in your place. He sees your sin punished in Christ. To be justified means... To be declared righteous. Students, let me put it in your world, okay? You want to get an A this semester. 4.0 would be really nice. So you step into every class, right? And your parents are here with you and they're saying, yeah, yeah, listen to that, okay? (laughs) Professor hands out a syllabus. He says, if you get 90% on all exams and homework, I will declare you righteous or I'll give you an A. You meet the standard. What is the standard? The standard is the very character of God. The standard is perfection. Nothing short of that will do. In God's world, it is not 90%. It's 100%. If you want to be declared righteous, you have to be as righteous as Jesus Christ. And you cannot on your own give it up. But if you are in Christ, 
you share the righteousness of Christ. You share Christ's status before God. You are declared right. That is the image of justification by faith. And you know what? It is such a relief to me. It should be a relief to you. You can't earn it, so give up trying. As Paul will say, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. All are in exactly the same camp. It may be that you're in the mine and the depths of the earth. You may be on the top of the Alps. You still cannot reach the stars. And so God reaches down to you and he says, if you just believe, and we'll talk a lot more about this next week. We're going to discuss faith and what faith means. That'll be the focus. But the point is this. When you stop working and trust in Christ's work, God says you are in right relationship with me. That is the essence of the gospel of Christ. Don't miss that. Okay? Don't miss that. But there's more that it accomplishes. We are put in right standing. We are also given perfect freedom. Again, read with me in chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and all are falling short of the glory of God, being declared right. Okay, having our status changed. You are in right relationship with God, the judge. And God, as judge, once he makes the declaration, it cannot be reversed. This is the foundation for eternal security. You can't say of yourself, I choose no longer to be in right relationship with God. God has declared you right. And God is the judge. And you don't have the authority to undo the declaration of the eternal judge of the universe. It's not possible. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. About time. Give me one of those. Thank you. Two. All right. Okay, let's keep going. Okay. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, in Greek, there are two words for redemption. One focuses on the cost. Uh, that's ex agorazo. It means to go into the marketplace and buy a slave out of the marketplace. And the focus is on the cost of purchasing that slave. The second word, which is used here, apolytrosis, talks about the result of redemption. That is freedom. That is freedom. Okay, and the primary image is of slavery and being rescued from slavery. So not surprisingly, in the Old Testament, the image is of uh, Israel being bought out of slavery in Egypt. So it says in Deuteronomy, because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now in the New Testament, that, that's the big image uh, actually, both images are used, but that's the big image of this word, that we are rescued out of slavery. As Jesus will say in Matthew, the master of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's why he uses this specific word. He's going to develop this concept in Romans 6 through 8. We are born slaves of sin, and we're born slaves of the result of sin, which is death. But what Christ did is he redeemed us from that curse. He purchased us and set us free. And so the result of justification, being declared righteous, is that we're also set free. This is going to have a very practical effect that Paul will develop in 6 through 8. Since we're free from slavery to sin and death, we don't have to say yes to sin any longer. That's not legal fiction it's not God pretending that we have changed. It is a legal reality that changes our capacities to live differently on this earth. That's the song of the redeemed, rising up to praise the king. We're free. No longer slaves to sin and death. What did it cost? Okay. He's also going to talk about the cost. 
Notice with me again. Verse 24. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. What did it cost? Well, to us, nothing. Because there's nothing actually that we could give for it. And God doesn't need our small payments. So he said, instead, I'm going to give it to you freely. The word used here is literally a gift. Okay? Paul's really specific in his vocabulary. The word dorea means a gift with no cost to the recipient. All the cost is borne by the giver. In other words, it's not like a grandparent giving his grandchildren a puppy. That's the image that came into my mind. You know, a gift that's got serious strings attached, right? And it's going to cost the giver a lot, or the the getter a lot. We don't want that. Thanks, but no thanks. No, this is a free gift. No strings attached. Same word is used in Revelation 21. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the A to Z. I'm the first and last, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Literally, I'll give it to him. A gift. No cost to the recipient. No cost. No cost to the recipient. He goes on and he says, not only is it a gift that is given free, it is a gift that is given by grace. I personally think that's the most beautiful word in the entire Bible. Grace means a gift that is undeserved. A gift that can't be earned. And so God, in his benevolence and beneficence, says, let me bless you. In place of your condemnation, let me bring blessing. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift. No cost to the recipient. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. I want you to say that with me, if you would. I retranslated it so we could say it together, okay? Say it with me. For by grace, we have been saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of our works, so that none of us may boast. None of us will stand before God offering any boast of our own. Instead, we will stand in front of God and we will boast in Christ. He worked it out for us. We are justified. We are redeemed. The cost to us, It's nothing. Okay? But God's grace, free to us, it's not cheap. Instead, God bore the entire cost. Notice again verse 25. It says, Jesus Christ, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. God displayed him publicly as a propitiation. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews Uh, Mark your place here in Romans and turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Propitiation, again, is one of those, uh, this is kind of like Greek vocabulary morning, right? Uh, Propitiation is not a word that we use much in our daily conversation. Uh, In classical Greek, it had this idea. Uh, The gods and the demons were angry at you. And you had to figure out a way to turn away their wrath, their anger, and get their pleasure. So they would bless you. In the Old Testament, this word specifically that Paul chooses refers literally to the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. 
Why don't you look in the Romans, or I mean Hebrews chapter 9. Let's look in verse 3. Read together. This is in the tabernacle, okay, that mobile worship center that God gave to Israel. It says, behind the second veil there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. The author of Hebrews is describing here is the Ark of the Covenant. It's a box. It's covered with gold. On top is a lid. That lid is gold. And on each end of that lid, there, there are cherubim. Because this was a shadow. It was an image. Remember, Moses was given a, a vision of what heaven was like, specifically the throne room of God. And God said, now go back and make a copy of this. And the Ark is a copy of the throne room of God, cherubim, angels surrounding God's throne room, the, the lid being literally the, the seat of God. This is where God sits. And so this became the focal point of, of worship and the focal point of the sacrificial system. Once a year, we're told that uh, the high priest would have the privilege of going into the Holy of Holies. Just once a year on the Day of Atonement, which actually just occurred about a month ago, a few weeks ago. Leviticus 16 describes it. The priest would go in one time and he would bring in blood. And he would take that blood and he would smear it on top of the lid or on the throne room of God. And the idea was this. God is sitting on his throne and as he looks down at humanity, what does he see? Well, he sees uh, manna and Aaron's rod and the law. He sees three reminders of Israel's sin. The rebellion in the wilderness, the rebellion against Moses and Aaron's authority, and their breaking of the law. Right when he had actually given it, they make a golden calf. He's reminded of that. And there are more sins because all are falling short of the glory of God. There are more sins that have accumulated throughout the year. And God looks down and what does he see? He sees sin, he sees debt. And so an offering is made to propitiate him, that is to turn away his wrath. And that's what Paul says. In Christ's blood now, God's wrath has been turned away forever because Jesus didn't go into an earthly tabernacle, into a shadow. He went into the very presence of God, into the throne room of God, and there he offered up his own blood as an eternal sacrifice that would last forever. So he doesn't have to go in time after time after time. He doesn't have to be re-crucified because he offered himself once and for all, for all of sins, for all of humanity that have sinned from the foundation of the world all the way into the future. And that payment was enough. That blood doesn't dry and grow old and flake away. It is the eternal blood of Jesus Christ. Okay, so now we can have the hope that we are reconciled and redeemed and justified and it will last forever. Because of the price that was paid by the blood of Christ, a lamb unblemished and spotless, a perfect sacrifice that God accepted. Imagine God's wrath is like, it's like a bow. God in his holiness must punish sin. The bow is his wrath and he pulls it back and the arrow is justice. And it is aimed right at you. And God is patient and he's waiting and he's waiting and he's waiting. And then he releases that arrow. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, you allow Christ to step in front of that arrow. And he takes the full weight of the wrath of God on your behalf. So that you're not punished for your sins, but he is punished for your sins. 
so that the judge from his bench can look down and say, you are in right standing with this court. You're in right standing with the judge because your sin has been punished in Christ and Christ is right. Beautiful, huh? Isn't that a beautiful image? Okay. The cost is not borne by the recipient. The cost is borne entirely by the giver. And this is what is so very different about all pagan religions and even, about, even different from Judaism in the Old Testament. Because in those systems, the worshiper had to figure out a, a way to appease the God or gods. But in Christianity, God himself has appeased his own wrath. God took the initiative when we were dead in our sins and completely helpless and could do nothing to reconcile ourselves. God himself initiated to pour out the wrath on his own son. There is no other concept of God that even comes close to what we have in justification by faith through the faithful work of Jesus Christ. Now, why was it necessary? Read with me back in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, the second half of verse 25. It says, This was to demonstrate God's righteousness. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who is is out of the faith of Jesus, faithfulness of Jesus. That is the faith Jesus person. Yesterday, I got back online and um, thought I'd just see where are we financially, right? Um, The national debt now is... Close to 15 trillion, I think. Let me count those numbers. Yeah, that's a trillion, right? Okay. That's a big number. I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican, or Independent. That's a big number. And it just keeps getting bigger. I found one website that tracks it in real time. Okay, it's rolling over. It's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's not getting smaller. It's getting bigger. That's debt. And it is accumulating. And there's interest that's being added. And someday, it's going to have to be paid. What Paul is pointing out is, in the Old Testament, there was debt. And it kept accumulating. But God passed it over. How can God be holy and righteous and just and just pass over debt? That principle doesn't work anywhere else in the world. Doesn't the debt have to be paid? And Paul says, yes, because in the passing over of those sins previously committed, God knew that that was just a temporary solution that ultimately he would make a final payment. And that temporary solution was designed to point to a full and final payment in Jesus Christ. So God is just. God is just. God does not ignore sin. God punishes sin to its proper and fullest extent. That is why Christ had to die, to prove the righteousness of God. But second, also to prove the power of God. He punished sin but also rescued us. He punished sin, and the result of his punishment of sin wasn't that we would be forever separated, but forever reconciled. That's the power of God. And so Paul concludes this section with this really powerful phrase. It is, God is both the just and the justifier. God is perfectly righteous and holy and just, but he's also powerful in that he can put us back in right relationship with him. 
because of the work of Jesus Christ. It has been said that at the cross of Christ, the perfection of God's attributes is most fully displayed. Because God is both just and holy, he must punish sin and he does punish sin in Christ. But he's also loving and gracious and merciful. And so he punishes our sin in Christ so that we can have a substitute and not die ourselves. So someday, each and every one of us, we're going to stand before God, the holy judge. What will you say? I will say, guilty as charged. But I plead the blood of Jesus Christ. I have no other argument. I have no other plea. I just plead Christ. God, you gave me Christ. So all of my debts are paid. And God will look at me and he will say, you are right. You are in right standing from now and forever. Okay? As we close, we have an opportunity to share in communion, which is a perfectly fitting way to conclude this, this section of Scripture. Because it's a reminder of the blood of Jesus Christ. The cup is a symbol of his blood. The bread is a symbol of his body. His suffering for us. The wrath of God poured out against him so that we would not have to bear it. So as the uh, servers come forward and they deliver the elements, I'd, I'd ask you just to, to hold it until we're all served. And as you're waiting, let's just take a few moments and say, God, thank you for pouring out the punishment of my sins on Jesus Christ. Let's just take a few moments to give thanks and then we'll take the elements together. Hebrews chapter 9 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained the eternal redemption. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it in front of his disciples and he said, This bread is my body broken for you, my suffering on your behalf. Let's take the bread together. After they had taken the bread, he took a cup and he said, This cup represents the new covenant in my blood. Covenant that's not dependent upon your faithfulness, but upon my faithfulness. Let's take the cup together. Let's give thanks. Father, we thank you for the work of Jesus Christ. We thank you that in place of our unfaithfulness, he was faithful. He was faithful to all that you called him to. He was faithful in the face of temptation. He was faithful in the face of suffering and death. And he allowed all of your wrath and your anger against sin, which was appropriate. He allowed it all to be poured out upon him. And so, Father, this morning we stand before you, having no boast of our own, but we stand before you with boldness and confidence because we are right in Christ. Father, we thank you this morning for Christ. Father, we thank you for your grace in Jesus Christ, greater than all our sin, so much greater, that we have no fear of sin and death. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ this morning. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Go in the grace of God. Have a great week.